Good morning. Good morning, GBC family. My, uh, my wife was nursing our littlest one out there. I don't see her in her normal spot, but I believe she can see. You are? There you are. 12 years today, so happy anniversary. I get to do that because I'm preaching on my anniversary. Yeah, a 16-year-old Katrina went on a, an odd date with a 14-year-old Zach nearly 19 years ago to start it all off. I know, that's a story, but not for today. We continue in our series called Good Sex, God's, a biblical look at desire, delight, and design. And today we're going to talk about sexuality, holy sexuality, um, what the Bible has to say about sexuality. We're going to talk about homosexuality and heterosexuality. And before we, before we go there, I want to just rewind into some terms we mentioned last week. Talk about three historic views of sex. And so we talked about the, the sex is dirty view, which historically probably most anchored in the church, that our bodies are looked upon so lowly that sex was merely a method to procreate. And then you had the sex as authentic expression view, in which if I can't express myself sexually according to my sexual desires, then you are caging me in my identity. And then you had the third one, which is more so this, it's just sex. And that's really was our launching point last week in our conversation about pornography and hookup culture, casual sex. Today, we go back to that second view. Sex is authentic expression. So much of today's topic is derived from the conviction that sexual expression is deeply tied to identity. That to deny one's sexual desires is to be denied the right to be your most authentic self. So today we're going to ask three questions. We're going to talk about three things. The first question is this. Who is your most authentic self? What does that mean where does your sense of who you are, your dignity, your value, your purpose, where does it come from? That's where we're going to start. Number two, we're going to ask the question, what does the Bible say about sexuality and how it relates to that first point? And then third and finally, what should the church do about it? How do we respond better than we've been responding in the past? I've been made quite uncomfortable in some of my prep because the word of God is confrontational. And as Wesley Hill, who was a, a, a gay New Testament professor who came to speak at my seminary on a talk on the Bible and sexuality, one of the things he said that I'll never forget is, we do not go to the Bible for affirmation, we go to the Bible for transformation. And transformation often requires confrontation. And my hope is that some of us today, especially some of us that are a bit too comfortable, and perhaps some people who are in a heterosexual relationship thought are like, oh, you're going to be talking about me today. Yep. <laughs> the Bible's got something for everybody that today is about God's principles for sex and sexuality and that all of us have something to take away. Let's pray. God, I pray that there will be clarity Lord, that your word would ring true, that hearts would be softened to receive, that we can talk and receive these things humbly, Lord. I pray you, you just bless the discussions that come out of this, God. May anything that just is, is not true to your word fall by the wayside. 
Lord, would you just apply this Holy Spirit in the hearts of our people and in my own life as well? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first question, church, is who is the most authentic you? And before we go to what the world says and how the world tends, our culture tends to answer that question, we're going to start with what God says. And we're going to start at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. If you're in women's Bible study, you already heard me talk about this, you get it again. We're going there again. It's important. And it's important for today. And so, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. You were made in the image of God. Humanity was tasked from the beginning to be kingly representatives as we subdue, take dominion, and responsibly steward God's creation. All humanity was born with the potential and calling to represent God in the world. That's what it is to be made in the image of God. And that word selem for image is used to refer to idols throughout the rest of scripture. We're not supposed to have idols that represent God because you are the idol. You were made to represent God. So when people meet you, they get glimpses of God in some respect. We are God's prized possession as a result because you can't see this about any other aspect of creation. But here's the issue. Sin came in and screwed it up. Humanity had a really good thing and they figured out how to screw it up. I know a lot of us can relate. You have something going good and you screw it up. It happens here. Sin tainted and marred, broke the image that we bared, but it didn't remove it altogether. We are still image bearers. To steal an analogy from another theologian, if we were once mirrors reflecting God into the world, the mirror's still there. It just has a lot of cracks. And we see that in Genesis 9. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. Now, I'm not gonna talk about the whole Dying by, by, by humans part. You can talk about that another time. But when it says, for God made humans in his image, this is post-fall. And one of the reasons the punishment is so strong is because humanity is worth so much. Because we're image bearers. What does all this have to do with the authentic you? That, that question. Well, you were designed to image God in this world. You were given a purpose to represent God in this world. His character, his love, his grace, his justice. It means that you have a high calling in this life. You have a noble purpose in this life. You have a glorious mission in this life. And it's tied profoundly to the God that made you and wants what is best for you, the God that loves you. And the world would disagree on this as a source of our identity. Could have gotten this quote from a number of different places. This puts it really, really well. Lynn Shaw, the author of the book, Gay is Who I Am, writes this about personal identity. This represents just kind of the secular identity at large. Personal identity is who we are. It should come from within. It is determined by you. I'll read it again. Personal identity is who we are. It should come from within. It is determined by you. Now on the face of it, that may not seem all that terrible to some people. But I would encourage that if you poke and prod, this is quite an unloving statement. Think about this with me. 
your value, your purpose, your dignity, your identity, your, your authentic self, whatever the source is, you have three options. You have three choices. One, do you source those things out of what you say about yourself? Do you source them out of what others say about you? Or do you source them out of what God says about you? Those are the only three options you have. And you can replace the, the word say, you know, like the way you feel about yourself, the way others feel about you, the way God feels about you. That works too. But no matter what you do, you come down to one of those three options. And let's just, for a moment, take a quick break. And I want to introduce you to 13-year-old Zach. My freshman year of high school, 13-year-old Zach shows up to school. This is real. Share this with some in the past. Shows up to school and in what you could call the Abercrombie and Fitch era. Okay? <laughs> which is the era in which it was totally fine and acceptable for teen girls and their middle-aged moms to walk around with naked, hairless men on everything. Okay? Yes, there was a time. Some of you remember them bags. They were everywhere. I got made fun of mercilessly for having hairy legs. And so I remember going home and having a conversation with my mom and breaking down and deciding, I got to shave my legs because it's what all the cool guys do. And I did for a year. I shaved my legs. Now I'll tell you, diving into a pool has never felt so smooth. <laughs> diving into the ocean, not so much. Not when it's fresh. But listen, the last thing that 13-year-old Zach needed to be told is, hey, who you are, right? It all depends on what you think of you. All you are just depends on what others think of you. How much do you have to hate a teenager to tell them something like that? That who you are, your dignity, your value, your purpose, your identity is based on something that changes so much, that is so fleeting. How unloving do you have to be to tie a person's sense of worth to those two things. When I think about my own children, I do not want my kids to grow up thinking that who they are is determined by them. I don't, I want them, I, I don't want them to grow up thinking that who they are is determined by others. I think about the hard days in which they fail a test. They don't make the basketball team. They get rejected by a friend. I have a sister. I remember middle school girl drama with her and her friends. Dad's real. Think of one of my boys having a girl break up with him. That's the last thing I want them to be rooting themselves in. But you see, I do want them to know that their dignity, their worth, and their purpose is based on what God has to say about them. You see, because they bear God's image, they have a dignity that no one can take away. It doesn't matter what their hormones is. It doesn't matter how they're feeling. It doesn't matter how tough their day was. You see, because God was willing to take on flesh and hang on a cross and give everything for my children, I can point to them and say, that's what you're worth. Jesus came and gave it all. Why? Because it's what you're worth. And your worth isn't determined by some emotional whim or cultural change. You see, I can point to Jesus when my kids are struggling with a sense of mission and purpose because when he says all the laws summarize in this, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, that's not changing. And this is the message of the gospel. So why we have to start here, that you are worth it, that you are valued, that you have a profound purpose, 
Not because you happen to feel like it, but because the God of the universe who doesn't lie and doesn't change says it is so. You remember how I said that we were made in God's image, but that image is marred. So we think about what it is to become our most authentic self. We have to turn and think about Jesus. We see that in Colossians 1. And remember, we were told that we're made in the image of God, but that image has been marred or broken or tainted. In chapter, uh, chapter one of Colossians, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so us tainted image bearers, trying to image God in this world as our original calling, now we have Jesus as the image. The most authentic you, church, is the image bearing you that looks most like the image. Put another way, the authentic you, most authentic you is the you that looks most like Jesus. Batseba Seifu, an African author, she writes this, God teaches us that we will find our authentic self by losing ourself in Christ. And we see this play out in Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians 4 says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, talking about sanctification and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of truth, of the truth. This idea that if we actually entrust ourselves to God, that we can become more like the image, which is the image that we were supposed to bear to begin with. Again, embracing our most authentic self. Colossians 3, do not lie to one another since you've put off the old self with its practices. Put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to what? The image of your creator. The most authentic you is the you that gets lost in Christ. Now their pushback, it comes and it, it tied to longings and yearnings and desires and those are real. There are some people that are just, there's something just so attractive about identifying ourselves with our strongest desires, sexual or otherwise. Owen Strachan writes this, referring to our times. Things have changed. We in the West no longer base our thinking and moving and being itself in God. We no longer adhere to a stable, fixed understanding of humanity. People aren't made from any mold, formed out of any vision, designed with any telos purpose. They may have a body, but it tells them nothing about ontology, referring to being, and purpose. It's instead a canvas, a vehicle for the expression of self or any desire one should choose. The resulting worldview on offer today is a kind of secularist paganism. The only true thing it seems is me, and by extension, my strongest instincts, my most authentic longings. That's the truest me. And Tim Keller just, he gives a, a, a beautiful pushback with an analogy of this. And he paints a picture of a warrior from 8th century Germany. And I want you to imagine that this warrior loves to fight and he loves to go to war and he feels strong inclinations and longings towards aggression and violence. But the same man also experiences same-sex attraction. In that context, he suppresses his sexual attractions, but is celebrated for his violent inclinations. Now take the same exact man and plop him into our midst today. He would be told that he has to suppress his violent inclinations and he would be celebrated for his sexual desires. 
think if this objection holds true, does either culture actually allow him to fully authentically express himself? The truth is that you and me are comprised of lots of different longings and yearnings and desires and we're, not, we're just not defined by them. For the Christian, we know that to become the truest you, you become the truest you. The more you cling to Jesus, the more you look like Jesus. And we're called to be fixed to Jesus in all areas of our life. And the way we relate to food and the way we relate to stuff and the way we relate to money and the way we relate to friendships and kids and spouse and sexuality included, which is our topic for today. So that brings us to the second question. What does the Bible say about holy sexuality? Now, I'm going to assume the third view here. Remember I said, your identity can be based in what you say about you, what others say about you, or what God says about you. And you gotta pick. But if you say that I want, I want to be anchored with a strong sense of self, I want to be anchored to the transcendent, I want a, a safe and secure and non-fragile sense of identity rooted in what God says about me, then you can't ignore everything else he says. You can't have that cake and eat it too. And so when we talk about who we are is based on what God says about us, then we gotta keep looking and we gotta keep listening. Because to choose the other options, again, is to embrace a fragility in our identity. In fact, Charles Taylor, a philosopher, Canadian philosopher, has written about how in cultures in which identity is, is that which is expressed from within, that those senses of identity tend to be far more fragile and it leads to you having to force that opinion on others and force people to have to treat you a certain way and force people to have to talk about you a certain way because of how fragile you become, such that speech can even be called violence against you because you lack the kind of rigid and strong foundation, the anchor that you would have by being transcendently fixed on God. And so what does the Bible say about holy sexuality? Assuming the third view, assuming we're not basing it on what you say about you or what others say about you, but on what God says about you. Rachel Gilson, author of Born Again This Way, she came last year, did a Saturday seminar on sexuality and, and, and she actually spoke here on a Sunday morning. It was, it was wonderful having her here. We have her book um, that we generally sell between the two services at the Welcome Center. She defines it this way, chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage. What does the Bible say about holy sexuality? Notice I didn't say heterosexuality. I didn't say homosexuality. The Bible doesn't talk about orientations. The Bible talks about practice, right? It talks about behavior. What does the behavior of holy sexuality look like? Chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage. What exactly would we mean by marriage, we're going to get to that in a moment. Before we do, I want to reiterate from last week the, the two-story concept that we're coming to every single week. This idea that our world is tempting us to kind of separate person from body, that my body is merely a thing that my mind gets to operate, that my body carries within it no intrinsic moral value, that there's no shoulds attached to the body I've been given. I get to do with it what I please. Nancy Piercy writes this, 
Scripture teaches that the creational differentiation of male and female is a good thing. Our complementary nature speaks of a yearning for union, which in turn reflects the divine nature, a God who is a trinity, differentiated persons in relationship with one another. The question is, do we accept that created structure or do we reject it? Do we affirm the goodness of of creation or deny it? Do we see the body as a reservoir of meaning, a source of moral truths? Not what you have to think about your body, your body itself. Is there a teleology of the body that we are called to respect? Or do we see the body as just a piece of matter with no moral message? These are the worldview questions at stake in the issue of homosexuality. Do we make that divorce? Or do we continue to see ourselves, the biblical worldview is one in which that you are an embodied soul in which I can say, I am my body. There is a reservoir of meaning attached to the body God gifted me, the, sexu- the, uh, the, the maleness that God gifted me. There is, my body is a source of moral truth. What does that actually look like in marriage? I'm gonna do this probably a little differently than many of you would have expected today. And I'm gonna start this idea of holy sexuality by by talking through marriage and the four goods, the four goods of marriage. These are four things designed within marriage, purposes for marriage, inextricably tied to marriage that we see throughout scripture. This is God's design for marriage. The first thing, and you've heard this before, you'll hear it again, is that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And as Rachel Gilson said it, when she came, that, that, that men are called uh, to the role for those who, who, who step up to, uh, that decide they want to get married, that men are called into the role of playing Jesus, loving across the difference. And that women, only women, are called to play the role of the bride for those who get married, that the role, the, the role of the church as they love across difference. That marriage is a theological play in which men and women come together, loving across difference, telling the world about God's amazing affections for his people and this relationship that the church has with Jesus. That's the purpose of marriage, is theological play, as I've said before. Second thing, that in Genesis chapter two, it made very, very clear, tied to us being in the image of God, that procreation one of the goods of marriage, one of the purposes of marriage. And I'm gonna come back to this in a little bit, but I'm gonna mention right now, because this is a raw topic for some people, one in eight couples can't get pregnant. One in eight couples have someone who is generally infertile. And so my wife and I, for quite some time, when we, be, when we were trying to get pregnant, couldn't. And we actually thought that that was gonna be something that... that was gonna be our life. We began talking through adoption and things like that. And I know several people in the church who they could not biologically have kids and they've pursued adoption and and, and supporting families in other ways. I think that's noble and wonderful. But I just wanna put that out there that when we talk about procreation, we understand that. And some of you may fall in that category. The third one is sexual intimacy. I actually found a, a photo diagram for this one. I'm just kidding. All right, preach, preach on porn last week. We're not, none of that here, okay? And the fourth one, I'm not gonna go into that one right now. The fourth one is companionship and faithfulness, which we see mentioned all throughout scripture, Genesis, Corinthians, the gospels, Ephesians, the four goods of marriage. We call them purposes of marriage. 
Now, here's the thing, church. The world, the world, outside the church, people outside the church would look at these four things and they would say, the bottom two, those are good. The top two, those are a matter of preference. That is the world, that would be the worldly opinion when you look at God's design for marriage. The bottom two, yeah, but you know what, what about the bottom two? Anyone can have the bottom two. Homosexual, heterosexual, it doesn't matter. Anyone can have the bottom two. If that's gonna be the bar that you set, in order to set that bar, what do you have to do? You have to divide the self from the body. But if the body is actually, if we are embodied souls and, that, and the body is a source of a reservoir of meaning, if it comes with telos, if it comes with the body itself is a source of moral truth, then what we have in the top two is a beautiful God-given design and purpose for marriage. And we'll talk about these because the truth is when the world looks in at the church and we say, this is the design for marriage, they might point at the church and say, wait a second. We say the top two are a matter of preference, but everyone in the church says they're a matter of preference too. At least the people I know. You think about the way that we treat our wives' husbands. Wives, the way that we treat our husbands is offering the world a picture of Christ and the church a priority for you. Has it ever been a priority for you? Has it ever been something you've talked about? Has it ever been something you've prayed about? Do you treat your marriage with the intentionality it should be afforded given just that point alone? We embrace the idea that we are embodied souls with a telos associated with the maleness or femaleness we are created. Only males and females can come together for that first point. And if we don't want the world to point at that and say, that's a matter of preference, we shouldn't be doing it ourselves. The second one is procreation. I was hesitant about this in my prep. Because God, when he creates man and woman in his image, he gives them the mandate to rule, to subdue creation, to steward creation on his behalf. And then he says, be fruitful and multiply. And tied with the image bearing and tied with the ruling is this idea of coming together in sexual union to make more image bearers. Now, hear me, what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you can't use birth control. I'm not trying to grow our kids' ministry. <laughs> I'm not saying you have to have children. What I'm saying is this, the decision to stop having children is a deeply theological decision because you are making the decision to divorce sex from procreation. And the world would point at that and say, yeah, that's a matter of preference. You don't need to have procreation in order to have sex. You don't need that. Which is why men can have sex with men, it's not a problem. And women can have sex, it's not a problem. When you approach the decision to stop having children and it is a matter of mere cost because we're the wealthiest nation in the world and of course that means kids are expensive for us because we're so wealthy, that's sarcasm. If it's a matter of 
comfort or convenience or personal preference. If those are your reasons for divorcing sex from procreation, your arguments are worldly arguments. You sound just like them. However, if after thoughtful, prayerful consideration, you make this big decision based on calling and conviction, then okay. I'm not saying you have to have eight kids. I'm not saying you have to have any kids. What I'm saying is this is something that requires intentionality and it's not a mere comfort or convenience thing. This is important. These are the four goods of marriage. Again, a part of the design. And if you believe in an embodied soul and you believe in the telos that comes with your maleness or your femaleness, we see that in the picture of Christ in the church. And we see that in these two top things that a man and a man or a woman and a woman can't do together. Now, when we talk about design for marriage in scripture, that that design as we've talked about here can really only be fulfilled by a man and a woman. Again, I didn't mention anything about orientation or desires or talking about practice. There are objections that come up. And the first objection sounds something like this. You Christians always cite Leviticus from the Old Testament, but Leviticus says you can't do a bunch of other stuff too. How come you pick and choose? Because you open up Leviticus and it gives you some instructions about shellfish. Tell it you can't have bacon. I know you would fail that immediately. <laughs> Women on their periods got all these special instructions they got to do. Y'all ignore all that. But then you come to Leviticus 20 and it says, if a man sleeps with a man as with a woman, they have both committed a detestable act. They must be put to death. Their death is their own fault. How come you pick and choose? I want to address that. The Old Testament, you have three kinds of laws. You have civil law governs for a part of their governing, okay? You have ceremonial law, which governs worship. And then you have moral law. Now, the civil law is not governing us today. It's no longer in practice. The ceremonial law dealt in their worship. And Jesus came and he said himself, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And in an encounter he had with a woman at the well in John 4, he says, he tells her there will be a time in which people aren't worshiping in a particular place, but in spirit and truth, that the church will worship in spirit and truth that Jesus fulfilling all of the law that corresponded to the worship of God when it had to do with being clean or unclean. Jesus declared all those foods clean so that now in order to come to worship, you don't have to deal in that because Christ has paid the price for it. And so we don't have the civil law. When you look at whether or not you can have bacon, okay, that deals in the ceremonial law. And then you get to the moral law. And the moral law of God affirmed in the New Testament is that which does not change. And so when people point to that, like, wait a second, wait a second. You clearly like seafood, but you're quoting this. It's like, it's, it's different. And that's an important difference. But Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians when he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexual immoral people. That's pornoi. Uh, same root as porneia from last week. Pornoi. And he doesn't mention homosexual uh, uh, behavior first. He mentions all sexual fornication. Everybody. No matter who you're attracted to. 
No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. And that phrase right there takes the language straight from Leviticus, affirming what was said before as a moral law. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. That Paul affirms that as a part of God's moral law, affirming that design. Now, the second objection is probably the most common that I hear is Jesus never speaks against homosexuality. Never once does Jesus explicitly condemn homosexuality. And the logic here has a lot of fault with it. Okay, it's one of the most common ones I hear. So just imagine if you woke up tomorrow and a friend of yours posted something on Facebook talking about how you like to punch puppies in the face. Now you confront this person. What in the world makes you think that I like to punch puppies in the face? And they say, well, you've never told me that you don't like punching puppies in the face. So I'm just gonna assume it. Now the problem with this or any example, okay? You can get as light or heavy as you want there. But any example is your response would be, I didn't think I had to. I don't know anybody who does. Absence of evidence is not the same as evidence of absence. We know that the universal view of sexuality amongst the Jews in the time of Jesus and in the centuries following was one that saw holy sexuality as the, as the practice of a man and a woman coming together in committed marriage. That even then, we do see Jesus affirm that in scripture. In Matthew 19, he writes, some Pharisees approached him, Jesus, to, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that he who created him in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Why do we mention that? Preston Sprinkle points it out that Jesus goes out of his way to include the male and female bit from Genesis, which is rather irrelevant for the divorce question. If marriage is between two consenting people, regardless of sex difference, then bringing in Genesis 1 is a waste of messianic time. The reference to sex difference is superfluous and unnecessary for Jesus' point about divorce. If that is, sex difference makes no difference in his understanding of marriage. But for Jesus and every other Jew in the first century, Sex difference is part of what marriage is. It's the one flesh union of two sexually different people. Our first point this morning is that we find our most authentic selves when we lose ourselves in Jesus, when we become more like Jesus. Our second point is that holy sexuality is chastity in our singleness and faithfulness in marriage according to God's created design for marriage. The third question is how does the church respond? Now, in 2014, me and a buddy road trip from Mexico to Kentucky to go to the Together for the Gospel conference. Now, never forget one of the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention. There was lots of different people there from different denominations, a con fairly conservative evangelical conference. But one of the leaders from the SBC gets up there and he introduces this man, Sam Alberry. Sam Alberry was someone who uh, experienced the same-sex attraction. He is a pastor. And the leader of the SBC was very clear that, you know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have let this guy speak here. We wouldn't have let him in, merely because he was willing to admit that he experienced the same-sex attraction. Now, Sam Alberry has written a fantastic book. It's short, it's concise, 
explains everything the Bible says and also gives practical insights into how to respond to people and navigate the world called, Is God Anti-Gay? Um, I'm gonna put this here. If, if you'll read it, anyone can feel free to grab it. That one's free. In between services, generally, we sell them there. They're on Amazon as well. But when I saw that at this conference, what stuck with me, and honestly, what, what upsets me, that's probably not a strong enough word, is that the biggest thing standing in the way of repentant sinners from a large spectrum of different kinds of experiences of sexuality, the thing that stands between them and an assurance of God's grace in their repentance is the attitudes of self-righteous Christians. The thought that this person who had entrusted his life to Jesus was willing to admit that he experiences this kind of sexual inclination would have been forbidden from coming should confront us because you could say that about a lot of churches not too long ago as well. And the truth is in the church, we tend to be loud about the things that don't affect us and really quiet about the things that do, right? But our call is to love as God loves. Now, John 1, 17, God is love. Jesus, God in the flesh came and Jesus was love. And I just love how we, he puts this in 117. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth, grace and truth. And in the area of sexuality, we tend to lean so far in one direction or the other, as opposed to trying to balance the two. And for many of us, as I said, the temptation is just be loud about the things that don't affect us and quiet about the things that do. I might be really quiet about coveting because if you ever shopped with me, you would know that's a sin issue in my life. I might be really quiet about gluttony because if you knew my relationship with food, you would know that's a sin issue, that's a rebellion issue in my life. I might be really quiet about gossip because if you knew how important and self-righteous I felt when I talked bad about people behind their back, you know that's a huge sin issue in my life. But sexuality? Man, I'm a heterosexual. You preach on that all you want, I'm good. Let's talk about it. We get really loud about that. Give me nothing but grace on my coveting, on my gluttony, on my gossip. But when it comes to sexuality, we'd be all truth. Jesus came to confront, to conquer, and to overcome the world. He died a gruesome death on the cross for all sin, including yours, and whether your false God is Amazon.com, whether your false God is your stomach, whether your false God is that yapper you can't stop using to throw shade at people behind their back, or whether that false God is your sexuality, it's all sin. And Jesus came to die for all sinners. And we welcome all sinners here at GBC, knowing that Jesus changes lives. That when people meet Jesus, power of the Holy Spirit, people change. And we don't wanna be quiet about any sin. We wanna confront sin, but we do so knowing that we are purchased by the blood of Jesus, by the grace of God. And so we're to love how God loves. Grace and truth. But secondly, coming to a close here in a minute, we are to value what God values. And that means church, that we're called to value singleness in the church. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 I'll just read the first scripture you have there in the back at the beginning. And you, you can go back and read the rest of the chapter later. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. He goes on. And there's one other thing I wanna mention. 
He talks about how the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. If you are a married man, you should be concerned with how you please your wife. If you're not concerned with that, probably don't have a great marriage. Verse 34, his interests are divided. That's the truth. Paul spends several scriptures here praising singleness because a single life is a, a less distracted life when it comes to living out God's mission in this world. God values singles and God values singleness. And if we, the church, are going to stand on the principles that holy sexuality means fidelity in a marital union between a man and a woman or chastity and singleness, then we have to realize that we're gonna have single people in our church. And that includes people with the same sex attraction and it includes people with opposite sex attraction for many different reasons, including divorce, widow or widower. And I've heard stories from people just about people feeling the loneliness that they experience in the church because of how marriage centric it can often feel. We have to value what God values. We have to value singles. We have to value singleness. This doesn't mean that you can't long to be married if you are single, but it also means that you can find purpose and mission in the kingdom of God in your singleness. Now, as a parent, I thought about this this week. This was a confrontation for me. If my sons were to grow up and any one of them hits puberty and begins to experience same-sex attraction instead of opposite-sex attraction, they begin to experience same-sex attraction. One, would they feel comfortable talking to me about it? Two, will they see singleness? Because at that point in time, they're gonna be confronted with a choice of what they're gonna do with their sexuality. And they may feel confronted with the reality they may have to pursue singleness. Are they going to see in my home? Are they going to see in my friendships? Are they going to see in the way I live my wife, my life, a value of singles and singleness? Or are they going to think that to be single means to not belong based on what they see in my life? We have to value what God values. This is our response. One, we find our most authentic selves when we look most like Jesus. Two, holy sexuality is chastity and singleness, but faithfulness in marriage according to God's design for it. And three, the church, we are called to love as he loves and to value what he values. Pray with me, church. God, I thank you for this series. I pray that this series would challenge people to get into your word, to pursue its depths. I pray, Lord, that as we mentioned, things would be confronted. We don't look for affirmation, we ask for transformation. And so God, would you just, would you just bless us as we seek truth together as your people. May we be reminded of just how treasured and valued we are by you. Help us, Lord, as a church to be a place in which anyone of any background can come and feel the warmth of your grace where they can come and be confronted by the power of your gospel. Get us out of the way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen.